5: give us your attention we need everything you got fast waiting on reparations we be the illest podcast
6: tune in every thursday politics and wordplay we fight for the people because they got us in the worst way
5: from the hill to brazil bombay to kanye
6: from the left enclave to what the neocons say
5: every thursday cop the heady conversation and
6: break us off with some bread because we waiting waiting on on reparations. reparations listen to waiting on reparations on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts The art world, it is essentially a money laundering business.
7: The best fakes are still hanging on people's walls, you know. They don't even know or suspect that they're fakes.
8: I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is a podcast about deception, greed, and forgery in the art world.
3: I just walked in and saw this
9: bright red painting presuming to be a Rothko.
8: Of course, art forgeries only happen because there's money to be made. A lot of
0: money. I'm listening to how what they're paying for these things. It was incredible amounts of money. You knew the painting was fake.
10: Um.
8: Listen to Art Fraud on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
11: and welcome back to The Office Deep Dive. I am your host, as always, Brian Baumgartner. So as this podcast begins to take on, well, a new look, to take new wings and launch into version 2.0, which I can't wait to share with you, I have to admit. I've been thinking a lot about how extraordinarily lucky I have been to, to get to create all of this and to have so many of you Responds so well to it. You guys, it means so much to me. So, for a special treat, I am compiling the best of the best from the Office Deep Dive into a two part episode release. I couldn't include everyone, of course, and I I truly do love my entire Office family. So, go back and listen to any of the episodes you might have missed. But today, we're going to start where it all started. Across the pond. In jolly old England, in actually in the land that made the very dish that inspired our own Creed Bratton to write this podcast theme song, Bubble and Squeak. That is, we are going to begin inside the beautiful mind of Ricky Gervais.
0: Bubble and Squeak, I love it. Bubble and Squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every moment
4: Left over from the night before
11: Do you remember uh, the first time you met Ben Silverman?
12: Yes, I do. I was walking down the street (laughs) in London. I think I was going to see my agent. And the phone rang, um, and he said, "Hi, it's Ben Silverman. You don't know me. I wanna, I wanna remake The Office for America." And I went, "Okay, all right." He said, "Can we meet up?" He said, "I'm in town." I went, "Right." He said, "Where are you? I'll come to you. I'll jump the cab." I went, "Okay." And I looked up and I said, "Right, I'm right outside Starbucks in Wardour Street." And he went, "Wait there. I'll be there in 15 minutes." And he jumped in a cab. He got. I'd never met anyone like him. He came and found me because obviously he knew what i would look like because he'd watched The Office. And um, he talked to me and I said, well, listen, let me introduce you to my agent to get the ball rolling. And I took him in um, to see Duncan Hayes, who was my, uh, UK, still is my UK agent. and that, And that was the beginning of it. And then I can't remember all the details or all the phone calls, but I think the next big step was we sort of auditioned showrunners and we saw some amazing ones from my favourite programmes of all time. We, uh, we chose Greg and I think we chose Greg, not just because of his body body's work, which was as good as anyone's and he was a nice chap, but I think, I think it was because he was the only one that brought up that he thought it was a love story. That was very important. To me, the the love story, right. So uh, you know, I, I didn't want to. I never thought of it was you know just a sitcom. You know, you, traditionally sitcoms were, as I say, an ordinary guy getting into capers and ending up back at square one, and there wasn't there wasn't really romance. But you know, we stole that from America because uh, you know, and, and movies because you know there was always a love interest in movies and a lot of American shows had more romance and love interest than, than ours. It was usually about a grumpy middle-aged man. So we, we liked that. And then, I can't remember what order this, this was in, but I think it was the Golden Globes where we won for The Office and I won Best Comedy Actor. Yes, I think that was the same week that we went to Ben Silverman's office and I don't know if it was before and after, but then Ben and Greg came to London. At that, I think that was nearer the time when we were very, getting very close to actually starting production. And uh, we worked out the translation. What was Slough in America? You know, what was the equivalent of this? And what was the equivalent of that? And do we have this? And what's, we almost did like a, a blueprint to, you know, just Americanizing stuff. Right, uh, and then we started. Then we started auditions, and and that was it. I do remember at one point, I think before or, auditions or when we were thinking of looking for, you know, the David Ben, and I think Ben Silverman called me and said, "Why don't you play him?" And I said, "Well, what be the point of that?" I did my bit. You did it. Now I want to rest. Now I want some. I want some other schmuck to do. Two hundred episodes <laughs> and, but mainly my reason, apart from the fact that I was lazy and I was terrified of being working hard for seven years, I said no this should be this should be made by Americans for Americans, and it, I was flattered that they even let us be as involved as we were, but you know it really took off when they started making their own show. You know the first episode was basically a, a remake. Right, But then it just got further and further away. And, you know, by the end, it yeah, it was it was its own show. And I remember that people were scared because The Office was such a media darling, uh, you know, to a few Americans, even at its peak. I remember The Office in America, uh, uh, the uh, our version. I remember it was the biggest show on uh, BBC America. And it had something like 1.1 million right. viewers. Right, right, right. And uh, Ben Silver was saying, listen, there's a lot of people that haven't seen this that won't be prejudiced. But of course, I remember he, he was worried about the press saying this is a, you know, this we love the original. Um, and uh, he came up with a really good thing. When they were saying, why would you do a remake of this, the, the original was perfect, he said, well, why I wouldn't I wouldn't make a film of a shitty novel I'd make a film of the best novel I could find. And I thought, that was such a clever counter. But of course we want a remake of something that's really good. Why <laughs> don't we do a remake of something that was terrible? That was shitty. Um, right. And then soon, you know, people forgot that there was an original. Some people don't even know there's an original. To, to most Americans, that they have no idea that this is a remake. Uh, and they don't care. And you know, and I imagine most people who love the American Office, they prefer it to the the British version. So, and which is a great position to be in for me. I remember once it was after syndication, and someone someone on Twitter sent me a, a tweet that said the American version of the Office is so much bigger and better than yours. How does that make you feel? And I sent back fucking rich. <laughs>
11: Well, there are certainly worse things to feel. So, Ricky was in England, more than happy to let the office take off in a brand new direction. Meanwhile, back in the States, some of our cast was still keeping a close eye on Ricky's work. Rain Wilson, in particular, had his eye
0: on the prize. Were you aware of the British version of The Office? I was. I was. So my friend Sam Catlin, he had heard about it, and he had seen a couple episodes and somehow gotten some, like, British DVD or something like that and had, like, even, like, an English DVD player or something. Somehow had advanced copies and, like, you've got to see it. Groundbreaking. Amazing. And so we went over, like, on a special occasion. You've got to watch The Office. And we were blown away. So I was really, truly one of the first people to see it in the United States. It might have been one of the first couple thousand people to see it in the United States. And just, we loved it. And then he would get his hands on a couple more episodes and we'd go back and have dinner and watch like two or three more episodes. So I loved it. And what happened was I got cast in a pilot with Janine Garofalo for ABC. Mark Maron was in it and um, Bob Odenkirk was in it. Okay. And this was this infamous pilot that, We did the table read, and they pulled the plug after the table read. So they had sets built. We had locations. We had cast. We had plane tickets. We were flying out the next day, literally the next morning after the table read, start shooting. And uh, did the table read. It went terribly. But guess what? I still got paid. And that was the same pilot season as The Office? Kind of. The Office didn't really follow a pilot season when it was first casting. Right. So what happened was— Vernon Sanders, who's one of the um, executives on NBC executives. Right. And I ran into him in the parking lot on the way to this infamous table read. And he's like, Hey, we got good news. And I was like, what's that? He's like, we got the rights to make the American version of the office. And I was like, outside, I was like, Oh, great. And inside I was like, motherfucker. God <laughs> damn it. That's fucking sucks. Ugh. Cause I love the British office so much. I didn't have an idea of like even what the American office would be or what role I would play or, or anything like that. But I was just like inside, I was just kicking myself. Oh! And then the plug gets pulled on that. And then I call my people and I'm like, Hey, I hear about this uh, office. And they're like, yeah, well there's a few months to go on that. So fortunately that uh, the space was opened and the door was open. The universe works in mysterious ways, Brian. That's right. It does. And so you eventually get a call. To go in and meet, correct? I was the first audition for the office. I have in my office at home framed the audition sheet of Allison Jones the first day of the auditions for the office. And I was number one on that list. So other people on the list are... Jenna Fisher, you can find it, it's on my Instagram somewhere, it might even be in my book, in the the photos included in my book, so you guys can find it, but uh, I think Adam Scott auditioned, I think there were, um, there was a lot of great talent that auditioned. My
11: story about that, I'll share with you really quick, was when Steve left, Allison Jones came to me, he had a little party, a little reception. She came and she goes, I was looking for stuff for Steve that I thought might be cool. She probably gave that to you like when she was searching yeah, around. Uh-huh. And she hands me a sheet and it says Kevin. And it says Brian Baumgartner, Eric Stone Street, <laughs> and Jorge Garcia.
0: <laughs> no kidding. So that was like the final three. But Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you and Although Eric Stone Street is way richer than you. <sighs> he is now. I know. Yeah, he Sorry, shoot. Sorry. So, yeah, so on that first audition, I auditioned for both Michael and Dwight, and my Michael was just terrible. It was just simply a Ricky Gervais impersonation, and I knew that I had more of an affinity for the Dwight role, uh, and I knew that I could really deliver on that. I just felt it in my bones. I'm like, oh, this is me. This is, this is exactly my kind of weird. Yeah, well, that I mean, you're, but you were so different also than
11: Gareth. In the yeah, British version. Of yeah. The, I mean, he was much Mackenzie more. Mackenzie Crook, yeah. Weaselly and and yeah. Dwight way more authoritarian and trying to derive power,
0: whereas Gareth seemed more backstabby. Yeah, we're different in a lot of ways and similar in a lot of ways. And it was this incredible luxury to go, okay, here's Mackenzie Crook. This brilliant actor, really strange looking dude. And he killed as Gareth. And it was so interesting. And I get to steal all of his best stuff. And then there's maybe stuff that I can add that's more my own. So it's win win all around. So one of the things that Dwight is most known for is saying absolutely ludicrous, preposterous stuff with a total straight face and a deadpan without any knowledge that what he's saying is ridiculous. And really Mackenzie did that so beautifully. And I I really just Frankly, stole that from him. Another thing I stole from him was the haircut. Um, I read an interview with him where he said he went to like just a local barber shop out in like Slough or some you know suburb of London, and he kind of got the haircut that would be the least flattering for his head and the most ridiculous haircut. <laughs> and I read that, I was like, oh, I want to do that. So I spent time in the mirror figuring out. What's the haircut that is going to make me look the most ridiculous? I have a huge forehead. And I was like, I'm going to frame my forehead perfectly with these little draperies of hair that will highlight the enormity of my carapace. Is that a word? I think it is a word. I think it's a Um, word. These guys aren't even listening. No. Um, And then, like, really short on the sides and then intense. And then it evolved over time. (laughs) Yes. The office
11: did have some pretty bad haircuts. Glad to know that Dwight's style was on purpose. I wonder what Jim's excuse was. Anyways, now Rain's on board the office crew, but what about the rest of the team? Ken Quapas, one of our amazing directors, told us about how another very important saleswoman came to be a part of the show. Tell me about what's true and what's What's lore or fairy tale? How did Phyllis get <laughs> cast in the show?
13: I well, <laughs> I, I, I will tell you what happened. okay. I, so um, we were doing uh, aud- prop you know kind of more traditional auditions, and in the room, Greg, myself, Phyllis, Allison, and the setup was is that I sat next to a video camera, and on the other side of the video camera, Phyllis was sitting. And Phyllis was reading off, and Phyllis was her casting associate. Yes. And I hadn't met Phyllis. All I knew is I was sitting next to her and there was a camera between us. And the actors who were auditioning were, some of them were kind of playing it to the hilt and kind of.
1: Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too.
16: a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. It was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered.
4: <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs>
8: We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast
13: every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Working a little too hard, Phyllis, meanwhile, was reading her lines in in this very kind of monotonal way, sometimes not even looking up at the actors, just looking down at the sheet of paper, and I just became fascinated with her. And started looking at her. And there was a couple of actors whose auditions I kind of missed because I kept throwing Phyllis these (laughs) glances. And I finally, during a break, I took Greg aside and I said, this woman really belongs in a paper company. And so we, Greg thought about it and, and he said, sure. And, And now there's, there is, there is one additional detail that's so wonderful and that is uh that after Greg said, sure, let's ask her to be in the bullpen, and she agreed to do it. That Greg and I had a discussion, and Greg said, Do you know if she can act? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I took Phyllis aside and I said, Do you have a lot of acting experience? And she said, Not not really, but she said that some years earlier that she had you know worked in burlesque in Branson, Missouri. Yep. And I said, stop it and she then later that week brought in a photo of herself in like a very you know wonderfully old fashioned burlesque outfit <laughs> it was
11: on her desk for <laughs> 10 years 9 seasons
13: yep and the uh, so that is the Phyllis story and and That's amazing uh, i couldn't be happier that she became such a beloved member of the ensemble
11: It's a hard time for hiring, so you need a hiring partner built for hard times. That's Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed, because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
7: On the latest season of the Next Question with Katie Couric podcast, Katie dives into, well, Katie. here exclusive podcast-only conversations between Katie and the people who made her memoir going there possible. We spent a lot of time together uh, around a dining room table here and in the city. And, you know, it, it was a very intense experience. All episodes of Next Question with Katie Couric are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
11: So now the crew had come together and the office was starting to air, but we were still very uncertain about what our future would be. Every day felt like we were on borrowed time. And then lightning struck. Steve landed a massive role. Here's Angela Kenzie to tell us all about it.
10: 40-year-old virgin, right?
11: 40-year-old virgin, That was
10: the game changer. For Steve and Jenna and I have talked about this, where we had this moment where we're like, "Oh my God, our friend Steve's going to be like real famous, like real deal famous." Right. I really felt like they were banking on Steve, and I was like, "Okay, I will attach myself to the Steve wagon. I'm banking on him too." I thought that that was a really good sign, but I still wasn't confident. I, I mean, I still was like, when we finished those first six, because season one was just six, they. Printed our names on pieces of paper and then laminated them and put a piece of Velcro on the back. And that's what stuck to your door of your trailer. And I went up to mine and ripped, the, ripped it off and said, I'm going to save that. That was fun. Because
11: <laughs> you were sure it was done.
10: I just didn't know. I mean, they were putting so much at the time. NBC had this show that was like our rival sort of show that was this couple. And they were on every bus everywhere. We weren't on any buses. <laughs> we weren't anywhere. And I was like, wow, they're putting a lot of money on those guys.
11: <laughs> yes. There was not a whole lot of confidence. But I, Kevin Riley.
10: I, I was about to say, I knew Kevin Riley was fighting for us. And I know that's why when we ultimately won an Emmy, all you guys lifted him in the air. And that's the photo that made the LA Times. Because we all knew as a cast, we stayed on the air because Kevin Riley put his neck on the line for us.
11: Right. When did you feel like we actually had security?
10: I know distinctly. Okay, go ahead. Well, I remember getting an email that our first Christmas episode had become the number one download on iTunes. And I was like, what? And I said, oh, that's it. Mama's getting rid of her Chevy Blazer. (laughs) And then I got a Honda.
11: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, that that was a huge moment. And it's funny, before that aired, there was a moment that was very significant for you and I, which was Booze Cruise. Yes. When we finally became series regulars.
10: Yep. I found out I was going to be a series regular. And there's a photo that um, I think Oscar took of Jenna and I when I found out we're jumping up in the air holding hands. And I mean, up until then, we were basically like week to week. Like I remember in Halloween episode when they were like, yeah, we're going to actually fire one person. We were all like, okay. <laughs> Hi, how's it going?
11: I, I, I petitioned for it to be you. Actually, uh, I want you to know.
10: I remember saying to my mom, I'm like, Mom, you know, pretty much anyone can go, really. And she was like, Well, every office needs a bitch.
11: That's <laughs> what like, she said to you? Yeah.
10: She's like, every office needs the bitch. I'm like, so okay.
11: So sh- your mom was confident that it wouldn't be you.
10: My mom was, but you have you know Bertie Kinsey. <laughs> yeah. She's like, Don't speak it. Don't speak it. You put out the positive.
11: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So at this time, so this happens, um, we shoot Booze Cruise. It airs after Christmas. Mm-hmm. Christmas episode happens on TV. Mm-hmm. It's our lar- largest audience ever. Ever. Then iTunes streaming, we become number one in that. Mm-hmm. And then Steve wins the Golden Globes. What do you remember about that night of us at the Golden Globes?
10: Um, I remember I got a spray tan because I thought I was really white, like too white in my dress. And so people were like, get a spray tan. And then Rain made fun of me so much. He was like, how, what, what? So one day on the office, Angela Martin is like pale. And the next day you look like orange. (laughs) He was like, Angela. I was like, I don't know, Rain. And then um, we weren't allowed to sit in the main room. Only Steve got invited into the main room where the fancy people were. We were in the annex and we watched him win like on TV. Right. And we were, we, we about like. Fell out of our chairs. Literally, we fell out of the sofa. We made such a scene that other fancy people were like, "Who are those guys?" We were <laughs> screaming. We we're so excited. And when the party lets out, it lets out into the room we were in, and we like we tackled Steve. We we're so excited.
11: We were all so excited. It, it's hard to put into words how special it was for our little show to finally start taking off, and for Steve, our our show dad, to start turning into such a massive star. You know, these days, with how popular The Office has become, it, it almost feels like it's always been that way. But it hasn't. And, and I think having our own special way of doing things really helped to make that happen. A big part of that was having so many of our writers double as our ensemble cast. So, here's Moe's.
17: Mike Sure. When was the decision made for writers to start acting in the show? From the, before the, before the pilot. I mean, Greg, coming from SNL, Greg wanted, SNL is very, um, the membrane between writers and actors is very thin and all the actors write stuff and a lot of the writers are in sketches and stuff and almost everyone there is a writer performer, even if he or she is only on staff as a writer or something. And he liked that and he wanted to get rid of the the false dichotomy of writers and actors. So he hired Mindy specifically because she was a performer. She was in a play called Matt and Ben that she had written in New York. He hired BJ because BJ was a stand up and a writer. He and then like we made Paul against his will play Toby in the first season. Like we forced he did not want to do it. He hated it. He hated acting. <laughs> But we forced him to do it because it was so funny to have him be the guy that michael scott hates more than anybody right but it was that was always the design i think he wanted everybody to to write and perform ideally except for me because he <laughs> made me a freak i most famously and most annoyingly to me played the character mose Shroot. oh my god we never talked about mose
11: <laughs> <Fuck>. <laughs>
17: oh my god I I, th- I assumed it was
11: going to be your first question. I, I, no, I have a whole section on it, but you were so great. Um, all right, well then just very quickly. Sure. You were cast as Moe's. I was. And you're happy about that? No, I'm, Are you uh, proud? I
17: hated it. I hated every second of it. Why'd you hate it? Because I was wearing wool clothes and had a neck beard, and it was always really hot, and I, I didn't, the joke was I didn't talk, and... That's not a funny joke, <laughs> and it was always like, I had to get up at four thirty in the morning and drive to the middle of nowhere and wear wool clothes. right. And it was and then the joke became with the writers because they knew how much I hated it. They loved like, what if you're shirtless? What if you're on a seesaw? What if you're on a trampoline? What if you're running as fast as you can alongside a car like a dog? I was at Parks and Rec. And they would call me, and they go like, "We need Mose," and I was like, "I have a job, <laughs> I have a life, I have young children," and they would just make me do it. They would would compete with each other to see what was the most humiliating possible thing they could have me do. But that that episode, <laughs> Paul, so Paul wrote that episode where that where Jim and and Pam go to shoot falls, right. and he wrote in the in the script, it literally says Mose appears out of nowhere and runs along the side of the car like a dog. That's what it says. That's I'm a human being, <laughs> right? And th- so we did that scene. It was 140 degrees. I was in wool clothes and and old work boots that, like, didn't fit properly. And that sprint is probably 150 yards down that dirt road from the time I come out to the time I had to run all the way up into Shroot Farms. It, of course, cuts off long before I ever get there. No, of course. But they were like, you got it. Paul was directing. was like, you got to run all the way there. So I did. Over and over and over again. Probably 12 or 14 takes because Paul <laughs> delighted in it so much. And then later in that episode, I'm in Jurassic Park pajamas that don't fit me properly. <laughs> and then Greg pitched the thing where he was like, what if there's a loud noise and Pam goes to the window and looks out and Moses in the outhouse <laughs> with his pants down and the door is <laughs> flapping close. I mean, it was like, it was aggressive. It was, a they knew... I never should have admi- if I had said like I love doing this, they never would have put me in the show again. But because I hated it so much and was so vocal about hating it. Well, you have confirmed something.
11: Mose is a, is a fan
17: favorite. You
11: hear about people loving Mose. Great. Okay. Let me tell you something. <laughs> what I have always said is I think Mose is a writers' room joke. Oh, and 100%. you have now yeah. confirmed without a doubt. Yes that it was literally a writer's room joke Every, meant to torture meant you. To,
17: meant specifically to make me miserable, yes. Yeah. Yes, I was in a coffin. I was <laughs> right. uh, like hanging upside down somewhere. Right. Like there were a bunch of things that we did that were then just cut out of the show. Right. Was, I was riding a moped over a, uh, like uh, trying to jump a bunch of cars. I They made me do that moped thing. I don't know how to drive a moped. Right. I don't know how to drive a moped. No one taught me how to drive. They were like, just get on and just rev the thing because the point was if i wipe out it'll be really funny. It'll be really yeah. funny. Yeah. Now ru- and then run across the roofs of these cars. Again, if you slip and fall and break your uh, pelvis, it'll be really funny. Right. Like there was the subtext was always <laughs> the worse this goes, the funnier it'll be when it right. happens. Well, i this was
11: after you left. I mean, sort of from the beginning, but then more and more Kevin started having a lot of of physical comedy type stuff. Sure. And there would be times where I would go to the writer's room and say, I don't remember if you were ever there, but I would say, you guys are writing for Homer Simpson right now. (laughs) And a cartoon, you can force to do whatever you'd like him to do. He can do whatever, right? But I can't, my body doesn't work that way. Yeah, no one's does. Right. Like the most painful, I feel like I still have pain from it, is the most innocuous you would never, ever, ever know. The office workers have to go to the warehouse and move boxes. Right. So they decide they're going to put. I remember that episode. Yeah. Oil down. Yeah. So they could move boxes to get to the truck. They try a bunch of different easier. things. Yeah. And everyone thought the big guy falling is really funny. So I just kept falling. Right. Slipping, and which means on a concrete surface with oil, kneecap on concrete.
17: Yeah. Man. Over
11: and and it's like guys, I can't keep. You've got to like
17: do yeah yeah
11: there has to be some other solution
17: um we had a uh we had a similar thing on parks and rec where nick offerman's character ron swanson was a sort of he was a little cartoonish in his abilities to do various things and we wrote this joke where he wanted to get he was eating a he got lunch and he was eating his hamburger and and the joke was he wanted to get out of the lunch as quickly as possible so in the script he shoved the entire hamburger into his mouth and ate it in one bite so they Dean Holland was directing it and he was like, Okay, action. And Nick did his best. But then Dean was like, You you really need to eat the whole thing in one bite. And he was like, This is a like a half pound hamburger. Okay, like I maybe the character can do this, but a human can't. I, a and human so, cannot. Yeah, yeah, That's like, exactly. Oh, right. right, yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah, you're not your character. Right. right. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. <All> right. <laughs> I, I almost wiped out super hard on that moped. Like, well, first of all. The joke was, someone pulls up in the car. It was the garden party episode. Someone pulls up in the car, and, I, and I'm the valet. Mo's the valet. And I get in, and they're like, just get in and tear off down this road, right? And and the joke at the time is, why is Mo's driving so fast and, and so insistent? And so I did, and, like, I tore off down the road. And I'm not a stunt driver. I don't right. know. Like, and suddenly, I'm going 65 miles an hour on a dirt road and on a set. And the back tire's fishtailed, because it's a dirt road. Right. And I, like slow down and was like, oh, right. I'm not, this isn't a, no one's going to like save me if I crash this car. I'll die. Because I I also got in and didn't put my seatbelt on because the joke was you get in and take off. And I was like, oh my God, I just, I forgot for a second that I'm not fictional. I'm Mike Shore. I'm not fictional. (laughs) I'm a human. I'm a human that could, (laughs) could suffer consequences. (laughs) Yeah.
11: Mine, very similar to that was, I think it was when there's the storyline of Dwight telling Holly that
1: Listen to sixteenth minute of fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: I started talking about this
15: incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up.
5: <laughs> you couldn't believe it.
16: From iHeart Podcasts. It's
5: like the police knew who he was before they got here.
16: A story about money, power, and
11: corruption.
14: I'm very jealous (laughs) of your generation that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where black women's voices unite and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker.
7: Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from?
8: He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes Podcast.
10: Oh, great. More dad jokes for me.
8: We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes Podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Right. And there
11: was a scene. We did a number of different ways. This didn't end up in, but where... I'm driving. And she's like, You're driving. You have a car. And I'm like, Yeah, Yeah, I I do. I have a car. And at one point, they were like, Okay, so do that, but then get out of the car, but leave it running. Like, leave it, (laughs) (laughs) like, leave it. Like leave it. Leave it in gear. Leave it in gear. Yeah. So like as you step out, the car is going to move forward and then we'll have somebody else who can. Jump in and stop it? Yeah. I did it a a couple times. terrible idea. It's like (laughs) profound. Meanwhile, it's Veda's car. (laughs) Right. Like her real car. (laughs)
17: Uh, Um, I, uh, uh, that joke that they did with Kevin in the later years where he didn't know the alphabet. um, elemento elemento Paul pitched that in season two. And we were like, Paul, that's, Insane. Like, you can't say that he doesn't know. He's an accountant. He's a working accountant. Like, he might not be the best accountant. Right. He's an accountant. And it made Paul laugh so hard. And the second that Paul took over the show, that joke aired. And I was like, well, that's what (laughs) he got what he wanted. Six years later. Well, at least someone was having fun.
11: (laughs) But look, we all have a part to play. Am I right? Even if our parts happened to be more dangerous than others. Like Oscar. I don't remember Oscar doing any crazy stunts or being turned into an indestructible office cartoon, (laughs) right? He had the honor of being the one who always got to keep his composure. You, and certainly over in accounting, you were really the straight man. Like you had your idiosyncrasies.
18: Yes, I think so. But in
11: the office, you were you, you were the barometer of reason very often.
18: Jim and myself.
11: Yes. Yeah. Which is what they're talking about in the coalition of reason. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Are you, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking at sort of the history of comedy in a way, how does, what is. Th-
18: oh, come on. You can do it. Brian, I believe in you. Ask your question.
11: The archetype of the straight man sort of in the history of comedy. Can yes? you talk about that a, a little bit? Is that is that easier for you to do or is that harder?
18: Oh, they're both good. It's apples and oranges. It's lovely. It was a lovely character because he's he's a straight man, but he still has a little bit delusions of grandeur, which you need cuz that you need that Right. Right? That um Well, nobody's perfect or nobody's, totally
11: straight. No, no. Yes.
18: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because Angela was a little off too. She was almost there, but then she was a little off. Everybody was a little off, right? Toby, every single, even Jim, he was too much of a prankster. He didn't take the job seriously. Right. He was a little too, right? Uh, right. Uh, juvenile.
11: Right. But you, you know, I think so many of the scenes between you and Steve were so special. Oh, yeah. Because... You know. He oh, I had to be a was, straight man in those things. Yeah, yeah.
18: Yeah. You just sit there and stare at him. Just stare at him.
11: Well, and you would do that. Well, he said things, And yes. you would get the laughs. Yeah. Because you did that.
18: Yeah, that's all you had to do, stare at him. And people at home would, would go, what is he thinking? He can't say anything. It's his job. He's being good. And now he's excusing himself. Thank you. And just get up and leave. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because he's like Oscar. And it's the buildup, the fucking Corel buildup. Oscar, can I see you for a moment? Sit down. Um, I ask you something. Um, I'm going to go in for a colonoscopy. And I was, what can I do to make it more comfortable for him or me? And he just trails it off and just leaves it. Like it's, like it's a, <laughs> a solid, like a reasonable question to ask me. And I'm supposed what am I supposed to tell him? I think I think I just excused myself. I'm like, Okay, Michael. I just got up and left.
5: your attention we need everything you got fast waiting on reparations we be the illest podcast
6: tune in every thursday politics and wordplay we fight for the people because they got us in the worst way
5: from the hill to brazil bombay to kanye
6: from the left enclave to what the neocons say
5: every thursday cop the heady conversation and then
6: break us off with some bread because we waiting, waiting on, on reparations. reparations listen to waiting on reparations on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts
19: From the creator of The Bright Sessions comes a new fiction podcast for all ages. Jump back to 1997 and follow Maxine Miles as she starts high school in the picturesque town of Hastings, New Hampshire. Fall is the season in which this small town shines. Apple cider, pumpkin patches, farmers markets. It's idyllic for adults and boring for Max. But suddenly Max's school year starts to look a bit more interesting when a fellow student vanishes. With the help of her misanthropic classmate Ross, Max starts to look into the disappearance. Her investigation draws her deep into the dark woods around Hastings and even deeper into the secrets and lies that course through the veins of this sleepy town. This new YA mystery from writer-director Lauren Chippen is an audio drama with heart and wit that involves the audience in a way no fiction podcast ever has. Listen to Maxine Miles on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.
0: Did you know that on the day Dr. King was shot, the all-black security detail, normally assigned to him, was called off? They're the ones who would not allow him to stay at any hotel with balconies. That security union was reassigned.
16: There was a man there who had just gone in and had was contract on my life because I was going
0: home. Did you know that on the day Dr. King was shot, two black firemen stationed across the street and one black police detective who was surveilling King were all taken off the job.
8: What was the emergency that caused you to be moved to another fire station? Surely there was no emergency. Chief Wallace, did you ever ask what this
6: was all about? Yes. And what were you told? Told that I had been threatened.
0: This is the MLK Tapes. The first episodes are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
11: So we're making The Office, right? And we're starting to get some fans. But then it turns out that some of our fans will actually be joining our motley crew, like the wonderful Ellie Kemper. Did you watch The Office?
20: Brian, did I watch The Office? I I, I devoured The Office. I was an enormous Office fan. You don't know what this is like because obviously you were on it from the start. But I loved The Office. I watched it every week. It's very strange to go from watching a television show that you happen to love and then being in the room with everybody. I actually, the first day, of course, felt surreal for many reasons. But it's, it's weird when you... I think maybe anyone has had this experience. If you watch someone on a screen and then you see them in person, it feels otherworldly. And particularly because I already loved everyone on it and admired them so much, it felt even stranger because, yeah, I was a huge fan. Right. It was very weird. I really tried to play it cool.
11: Well, so wait, literally, you watched it Thursday nights?
20: Yes. Yes, I did. I lived in New York at the time, and, and we always, my, my whole family was a fan of The Office. Have I told you that Moe's, Mike Schur, reminded us of my older brother, John, in college, (laughs) like when John was in college. So we had like a big joke about that. But yes, no, I lived in New York and I watched The Office every Thursday.
11: And had you met Allison Jones before?
20: No. So I met with Greg and Mike, Greg Daniels and Mike Schur. I think I was meeting with them for Parks and Recreation. This was before Parks and Recreation had aired. And I think that's what it was about. I I really don't know. It was sort of just a general hello. And after that, I met Allison when I actually read for Parks and Recreation, which it wasn't called Parks and Recreation. It was like Untitled Mike Schur Project. And then I didn't get a part on Parks and Recreation, but then they called me back later for the office.
11: Right. And your first day on set, were you nervous?
20: I was so nervous. I First, okay, I can't remember the actual very first person I met I remember telling John Krasinski who I had read was an intern at Conan and I had been an intern at Conan because my first scene John is making a cop Jim is Jim excuse me is making a copy at the copy machine and I'm like sitting there and I was like like in between takes I was like so um yeah um you interned at Conan right why did I feel the need to strike up conversation? I, I, I am the new person. I think I should stay quiet until spoken to, but I was unusually bold. And he says, oh, yeah, you know, Conan? And I said, I interned there, too. And that was it.
6: <laughs> that was it?
20: I don't know. Somebody walked. Away. Somebody saved me because I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have kept that conversation going very well. <laughs> and, then, and then the big news, Brian, I had to dye my hair that day. I have red hair. And as soon as I got there, they were like, you have to dye your hair brown. And I remember Mindy, I saw her in the morning and I saw her in the afternoon. And I had brown hair in the afternoon. And she said, why did you let them do that? I would never let anyone dye my hair. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, uh, because it's my first job ever. They can do whatever they want.
11: <laughs> anyway. Why did they dye your hair? Well, I,
20: you know, I still don't know. I think the reason was they, they said it looked that this new character's hair looked too close to Pam's color. Uh-huh. But I never, uh, uh, Jenna, but I mean the character, Pam, Pam didn't have red hair. Did she? No. Like, was it chest
11: Yeah, I guess. I'm not real good at hair. I'll be honest with you.
20: Honestly, apparently neither am I. (laughs) But anyway, yeah. First day memories are sort of blurry because I was so, I don't know. I don't think you can relate to this feeling because like I said, you were there from the start, but it was just so, it was first day of school, but. To the millionth degree, because it was like, I already, I'm like in awe of all these people. And I'm the new girl. Don't mess anything up.
11: (laughs) And of course she didn't. But there was another new girl, well, woman who came into the office family a little later on, Amy Ryan. And you, our fans, welcomed her with such open arms. I I think maybe that was because she did the one thing no one thought could be done. She completed Michael. But come on, don't we all kind of wish she'd completed Kevin instead? You came in ultimately to be a love interest for Michael, but I have to tell you, the storyline between you and I (laughs) on the show um, gets talked about a lot. And I think in the history of table reads that we had on the show, it was n- never more laughs because of the, how long that joke
9: I know. had been used <laughs> to set up.
11: And, you know, when I get asked uh, now about moments in the entire show mm-hmm. where I could not stop laughing <laughs> was you and the button. It's literally, if you <laughs> watch change, it, with the change, change this is a nickel. This, <laughs> is, a, this is a button. And there was something about the sweetness on your face, and you just very genuinely explaining to Kevin that this was a button made me smile every <laughs> single time. And I was like, I can't do it. And, and, and they're right there with the camera. I'm like I can't do it. And basically, then just turned it into a grin it, to say, "I'm, I'm so gonna, well. I'm gonna bang you." But that, yeah. Do you think that story could play now?
9: I mean, there's so much of the office that I don't know if it could play now. Um, it's interesting, so I just happened to watch that episode because my ten year old daughter and all her friends at school are really into the office. And my daughter is a little behind the rest of her friends because I think it's weird for her. So, yeah. but but anyway, so we watching that an episode. <laughs> and my husband Eric and I are like we're just out of her eye line, but here comes your line, like I'm totally going to bang her, <laughs> and I, you know, I'm like, we look at each other, like, see, and then you look over at her face. Does she register that? And, you know, no, because oh, uh, somehow it's going right over their head. I think, or she, maybe she doesn't, you know, right. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think, I hope a lot of it still plays because I think it's well intentioned. I don't think yes. we were cruel. No sadistic people on this show i mean but the stuff that doesn't play it's interesting to think about as we all think we're like well-intentioned liberal-minded caring people and the stuff that we didn't pay attention to and so you know you're asking me is it okay to make fun of a person who we think is mentally handicapped probably not Right. But it was really funny then. So what do we do with it like, you know? <laughs> right. I don't know where that lives. Um Right. I certainly don't want to offend anybody. I mean, I think the joke is upon the person who made the mistake. Yes. You know what I mean? Like it's yes. How could Holly be that Thick-headed, <laughs> or or that. Well, then it's Dwight,
11: really. I mean, yeah. that it's really that it's Dwight who well, is Dwight's the naughty uh, who is, one. Is the naughty but one. But
9: I'm a, I'm in the middle there of not using my own good judgment, or maybe asking for a second opinion, <laughs> or you know. I mean, we all we're all judgmental. We say we don't, but we judge everybody that walks down the block, you know. Right in our heads, in the little private tapes in our
11: heads. <laughs> yes. Okay, she's right. Of course we judge people. We try not to, right? I mean, what we try to do is something very different. We try to find truth and beauty in every single part of our lives. And why? Well, that goes back to the captain of our ship, the man we put all our faith in, our showrunner and creator, Greg Daniels. A few people have talked to me about one of your core ideas which is the idea of truth and beauty.
15: Yeah, that was my thing with Randall. I would yeah. go, truth and beauty, truth and beauty, yeah.
11: And what did that, what did that mean to you?
15: Um, well, you know, to me, that was, a, I, I, I think that's some romantic poet. I'm not sure where that came from. Okay. Somebody like John Keats or something, I don't know. And I don't even know what he meant by it. But the way I used to use it with Randall was, that's what we're going for in the camera, right? Let the camera seek out truth that's what it's trying to find. That's the point of a documentary. What's the truth? And also, not like a cynical negative truth. Like, also, where where is the beauty? It's like another principle of photography of like a good photograph is, you know, a little sprig of weed coming through the cracked concrete or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, where are you going to do something that's a little bit inspiring but find it
11: in a truthful way out in the real world? Right. Well, Mike Sure talked about it. And you told a story about um, a parking lot, an endless parking lot with lines and parking spaces, and in one crack there's a little flower, ah, a little dandelion. He said that. That's, yeah. that's
15: funny. I just made the same. Yeah. Yes, I think that that you know I I like the notion of aesthetic. Like, what are you searching for in art? And the Japanese have interesting aesthetics. With a cracked pot. Did he mention that? No. He used to use that a lot. No. So I think it's called woo. I'm not sure. Okay. But it's the notion of a perfect pot is okay, you know, and we in the West probably value a perfect pot, but a cracked pot where the crack suddenly makes you feel the history of the pot and the people who've used it in their family and have treasured it and kept it even with the crack in it, like it suddenly cracks through, you know, it suddenly will will touch you. It's those little details often of imperfections. That's like a, a it's just a cool sort of philosophy.
11: Yes. Yeah. I have, uh, this so far off topic, but a number of years ago, my parents were moving out of their house and I went for a week and I was like helping them and throwing out all of this trash. And we go into like the corner of the closet in a guest room that no one ever slept in. And in the closet, there was a big piece of paper that was folded up and I, I unfolded it and it was a Kennedy poster that my dad had like handed out or seen or collected or whatever. And I remember saying to him, can I have this? And he's like, yeah, it's like all torn or whatever. Yeah. And I took it and I framed it and I took it to the display and they were like, oh, we can, you know, do this or that. And I was like, no, 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 the crack has to stay there. Yeah. And the wrinkle, the folded marks, just as lightly as you can mat this on something yeah. and enclose it because I want that history of it. I don't know that idea. Yeah.
15: Well, also like, I mean, you know, I don't get too psychological, but, you know, when you think about your dad, right, you're. So the the relationship that you have with your father, the fact how old that they are, and just the sense of like passage of time being important to that relationship and fragility of it and knowing that it may not be around forever. And I can completely see why a tear in your dad's poster adds to the
11: the emotion of it. Yeah, yeah, Right. yeah, totally.
15: Um, Well, there's a lot about writing that, isn't necessarily only about the office but you know like when you have a set of principles that you're trying to do for the show right if you're going to say all right i want to be realistic i want to be relatable uh you know i want to be observational if you're going to follow those principles you're going to end up commenting on what's around you and this to me goes back a long way it isn't unique to the show necessarily but like, when I was on The Simpsons, which is, this is you know, it's a complete cartoon, but the way that one Simpsons writer won respect from another Simpsons writer when I was there was you did something super real. You had a line that just found, like, it just came out of a teenager, and it was just perfectly, you know, real to the situation. And somehow, in contrast to the cartooniness of it, that always seemed to be, like, a cool thing. And then when I got to... King of the Hill, we used to do a lot of research. We would go to Texas, I'd take the writers to Texas every season, and we'd fan out with our reporters' notebooks, and we'd you know, we'd try and dig up unique stories because I always felt like the shows that I really liked, the stories were original. like something had happened to one of the writers or you know, they weren't just going like, well, what did uh, what did Cheers do? Let's do a version of that or something. You had to go out and do your own work and dig up your own stories.
11: Well, Greg, I for one am so grateful for the stories you dug up. And I know that I'm not alone. Thank you to everyone who was a part of this episode and to all of you out there listening. Join us next week for another stroll. Down memory lane with some more of our favorite episodes and guests. In the meantime, all of you have a fantastic week. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Lang Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our producers are Liz Hayes and Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky.
1: Like this. Fun that fact. was one My of your things too. you brought back from Latvia. Yeah, I brought back because a hoop. all professional <laughs> basketball players.
6: Yeah, it's like a little
16: <laughs> seven
6: foot hoop.
1: Yeah. Listen to the Welcome to Our Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your
4: podcasts. Look through your children's eyes and you will discover the true magic of a forest.
6: Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.
7: On the latest season of the Next Question with Katie Couric podcast, Katie dives into, well, Katie. here exclusive podcast-only conversations between Katie and the people who made her memoir, Going There, possible. Katie is a pack rat. And she has basically her own archive of sorts in her basements. Plus, Katie explores some of the big news stories she's covered over the decades. And the people behind them, like Anita Hill. I
4: thought I could just get back to my life. And that wasn't possible. It was not going
7: to be the same. There's plenty of Katie's signature curiosity and no-holds-barred interviews, along with some of her own revealing answers. We spent a lot of time together uh, around a dining room table here and in the city, and, you know, it it was a very intense experience. All episodes of Next Question with Katie Couric are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad.